When the new millennium hit, there was a new wave of pop music that was taking over the world, and it was run by teen queens and boy bands. While many artists tried to take over, only a handful truly achieved world domination, and with the album No Strings Attached, it's safe to say that NSYNC achieved just that. Kicking off the new millennium, Justin, JC, Chris, Lance, and Joey took the music world by surprise when they released their sophomore album to record-breaking success. I mean it. From juggernaut sales, infectious radio singles, and sold-out world tours, the year 2000 was owned by InSync. So join me today as we take a deep dive into this era of pop music with no strings attached. Hey everybody, my name is Michael Kadosh and I'm here to welcome you all to Planet 2000s, a place where we celebrate pop music's most iconic moments from the most iconic decade in pop music history. Let's dive in. What's up, you guys, and welcome to a brand new episode of Planet 2000s. I am your host, Michael Kadush, and I am so happy that you guys are here with me today. Before we start, I just want to give you guys a little precursor here. I'm not actually recording from my home right now. I'm recording from my childhood home. So if the sound isn't the same, it's just because I don't have my usual setup. But we're going to do the best we can here because we're talking about NSYNC today. And NSYNC is maybe one of the most legendary boy bands of all time, obviously, besides for the Backstreet Boys, Boys to men and whatnot, NSYNC really did their thing for a little period of time. And we're going to be talking about their most iconic album today, No Strings Attached. So without further ado, bye bye bye, here we go. (laughs) So No Strings Attached was the third studio album by NSYNC. Production on the album was done by many, many different producers. Justin and JC from the band did a little bit of the production. Max Martin, Babyface, Teddy Riley, Guy Roche, Shakespeare, Rami, Christian London, and more did some production on the album as well. It used a blend of both pop and R&B, and it helped NSYNC separate themselves from their peers, particularly the Backstreet Boys, because if you remember, or if you were just a fan of music in this time, you know that it was all about NSYNC versus Backstreet Boys. You could not like both. It had to be one or the other, which is a little bit ridiculous because I love them both, but back then you had to pick a side, you know, in the days of TRL. No Strings Attached is actually considered to be the peak of the teen pop genre of the new millennium because CDs were slowly starting to be phased out in favor of downloading sharing services such as Napster and LimeWire. So this whole era of albums was maybe the last period of time where albums really sold. This album was legendary in terms of sales. It had the highest first week sales for an album, and that record was held for 15 years until it was broken by Adele in 2015. But we're going to get all into the sales in a little bit. Before we get into any of that, we obviously have to talk about the album itself and where the title came from, where the sound came from, and all that good stuff. We kind of realized what we wanted to to convey to everyone is that we're not puppets on strings, that there's a preconception about a group that may look like us but I mean this is our heart and soul on this record and we thought what better you know way to say it than no strings attached we're even happier with this album than we are at the last record we feel like this this record's got an energy that honestly no record has you know it's something exciting for us um and that's why we, we want to just do it everywhere. We, we feel like everybody can get into this record. Our first album kind of introduced us as a group, and this album's going to define us as a group. It's going to definitely define where we stand with our sound, and it's it's different from anybody's uh, who's out there. I mean, we did some different things with this album. We did a track with Teddy Riley. We did a track with Shakespeare, you know, and the stuff that we did with Max Martin is stuff that he, uh, him and Christian and all the guys at uh, Sharon, they wrote specifically for us. 
So the title of the album was essentially alluding to them being puppets and no longer being chained to their management, particularly Lou Pearlman. If you guys saw the boy band con story documentary on YouTube, you obviously know what I'm talking about. If you have not, I highly suggest you watch it because if you are a pop music fan and boy band fan of that time, you are going to love this documentary. It just shows how Lou Pearlman, who was essentially the mastermind behind all these boy bands, was really a con artist and... A little bit of a monster, or a lot of a monster, actually. Lance Bass is the main producer of this documentary, and he and other different boy band members of the Backstreet Boys and LFO and Five and all the other big boy bands of that time spoke and were interviewed for this documentary about their experiences with Lou Pearlman, whether it be their money issues with him or even things as serious as sexual abuse. So it's definitely worth a watch. In Sync, were signed by Transcontinental Management to Bertelsmann Music Group in Germany, BMG, due to a pre- pre-existing deal, and its distribution rights in the United States were automatically bought by RCA. We're talking pre-No Strings Attached right now, right? So Lou Pearlman, who was also the man who discovered the Backstreet Boys, was sued by NSYNC after the whole first album came out. And why was that? Because NSYNC said that Transcontinental, which is the company that Lou Pearlman ran, was defrauding the group. And according to MTV, Lou was taking more than 50% of their earnings, along with an extra sixth of their profits, because he claimed that he was the sixth member of every single group that he created. At least that's what he wrote in the paperwork. Therefore, legally allowing him to collect even more money, way more money than he was ever supposed to, and essentially conning these men out of the money that they're working hard for. Well, I mean, he, I, he was the president of our record label, and... Uh... You know, Chris Kirkpatrick put the group together and then he went to Lou Perlman and said, hey, would you support us? You know, if, if you know, I put a, a band together and Lou said, yeah, I would I would put money in you guys. And so he signed us to the Transcontinental record deal. He was our manager. And in his contracts, he puts himself as the sixth member of all his groups. Yeah. What? No. Yeah. Yeah. So what? he was. And, and the way he sold it to us was like, if I'm the sixth member of your group, you don't have to pay a lawyer. You don't have to pay a management fee. You don't have to pay me as the record you know, label. I will cover all of that, but that yeah, was, you just give me all that was of your all money. All a lie, yeah. It's like so. Basically, took ninety percent of everything. I know, paid. but in y'all's defense back then, you don't know, and you're getting no. an opportunity to do something. Yeah. When did your parents know something was wrong? Um, I think we all knew at the same time, and it was during our first check presentation. And we had been working for three years um, and not gotten paid a dime. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, three years. Mm -hmm. And where was the success of the band at that time? We had sold over 10 million records, had number one tours, biggest merchandise sold in the world. Uh, We were... The the group was making hundreds of millions of dollars. So at least you should have been paid a couple million? I don't know what that... I don't know what the thing was. Of course... I was thinking, okay, the check could be a million dollars. That At would least. be life-changing, you know, a 19-year-old finally falling into something like this. Um, and, you know, and so I was thinking, okay, a million would be good. The lowest number, I thought, okay, 200000 would change my life for sure. And then we open up the check, and it's... $10,000. So in Sync, whose first two albums, you know, their first album and their Christmas album had immense commercial success, insisted that they've not seen enough of the profits that they had generated by selling at that point 8 million albums in the United States alone. So in October of 1999, Transcontinental, along with RCA's parent company BMG, filed a $195 million suit. Take that in, $195 million in federal court to bar NSYNC's transference to Jive Records and from performing or recording under their current name as well as forcing them to return masters recorded in 1999 in preparation of their second album. So they were working on their second album while they were still actually signed to Lou Pearlman, but then 
it was in this time that they realized that they were getting their money stolen and they didn't have anything to show for it and they were being taken advantage of. When they spoke up, Lou Pearlman completely turned on them, sued them for almost $200 million and the rights to their name. So they were not even going to be allowed to use the name in sync, the name that they worked the last five years to build up. This obviously was a huge concern for the group and put their career in jeopardy because they're like, well, if we don't have a label, then how are we ever going to put out this music? Because with this suit, they were not going to be able to be let go. One thing led to another and a settlement was reached. After that settlement was reached, Jive Records wanted to release the album right away. But RCA and Transcontinental said that it breached their contract, so therefore they sued for a further $150 million. So after countersuing, JC of NSYNC said, Lou is an unscrumptious, greedy, and sophisticated businessman who posed as an unselfish, loving father figure and took advantage of our trust. Therefore, that is how you got the name, No Strings Attached, because this was the first time that they really felt like they were not puppets and they had a voice and they weren't being controlled by some man in his 40s or 50s and it was quite a euphoric feeling for the group to be able to release this album only because of all the issues that were taking place in the making of it Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC came up with the title of the album in a London car ride after the settlement so once the album was actually recorded without the boys having an actual label because remember they were not under RCA anymore but they couldn't sign with Jive because technically they weren't allowed to so with all this going on initially this made producers hesitant to give the boys their songs including Max Martin who was known for writing for the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and he ended up writing It's Gonna Be Me for them and initially he didn't want the boys to keep the song until their manager John Wright begged them. Johnny Wright, I just have to say this, I have a lot of issues with because he recently commented on a picture that Janet Jackson posted of a quote about forgiveness saying, oh, you should, you know, apply this to your relationship with Justin. Honey, that has nothing to do with anything and you have no right to say anything to the queen of pop, Janet Jackson. And Johnny Wright also sued Britney Spears back in 2007 when she was going through the trenches because he claimed that she owed him money from back in the day of being her manager. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's get back to NSYNC. (laughs) So the album ended up being released in March and alas, came Pandemonium. There were four singles released from this album. Three of them were worldwide singles. One of them was a single that was only in Europe. So those were Bye Bye Bye, I'll Never Stop, It's Gonna Be Me, and This I Promise You. We'll have to start with Bye Bye Bye, obviously, because it is the most legendary in-sync song of all time. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Britney Spears sang it in Crossroads and she gave it the legendary status that it has because if Queen Britney likes something, then obviously it's amazing. So Britney Spears is queen, but this is not a Britney Spears podcast. But Bye 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 is a legendary song. It was released as the first single in January 2000. They performed it at the American Music Awards, the Radio Music Awards, Rosie O'Donnell, all the shows that you can imagine, and they gave a performance, honey. Originally, it was written for the boy band Five. If you guys don't know who Five is, they're the ones who sing that song, Baby When The Lights Go Out, you know that, like, 98 pop song. Anyway, Five wanted to become a rap band, so they turned it down. (laughs) Not that Bye 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 would have been a hit with them. It was obviously meant for the vocals of NSYNC and Justin Timberlake, let's just be honest. The video for this song is legendary. It played on Much Music and MTV all the time back in the day, and I know me as a little boy, I can vividly remember everything about this music video and being and it being played just so much. Bye 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 turned out great. It was cool. It was cool. It was a lot of fun. We loved the video. We loved the song. And we're loving the response that we're getting from the song. When we first thought of the idea, everybody's like, yeah, this is going to be really cool. And I was like, you guys are weird. We wanted to do some, some like an Mission Impossible. JC came up with the idea. And everybody had their own little thing that we decided to do. It's a dude video. It's like video for guys. It's what we like. Trains 
cars, chicks, and dogs. That's exactly what we wanted. I don't know about trains, but cars, chicks, and dogs we like. Trains is just thrown in because me and Joey didn't have anything to do. Let's put them on a train. Great idea. I was scared to death. It's great to see our ideas come on, you know, with just a piece of, or just a, you know, an idea in someone's head, then it comes on a piece of paper, then it comes to storyboards, and then it comes to shooting. Wayne Isham, who directed it, thought of other ideas as far as a rotating, revolving room where it looks like we're running around uh, on a thing. That was his idea and stuff like that. So we incorporated our ideas with the, with the director's ideas, and it came out pretty cool. Do the choreography to a song, you know, according to what sound it has, and, and our sound is just taking on a certain edge that is new so we wanted to put in some new tight harder choreography so that's what it is it is what it is energy like i said the album is all energy in 2015, Billboard's Jason Lipschutz ranked it third on the list of the top 20 essential boy band songs, describing the song as an absolute monster of a single. Uh, the single peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in April 2000 for two consecutive weeks. And on the mainstream top 40 chart, which is the radio charts, the song reached number one in March of 2000, and it stayed there for 10 weeks, making it one of the songs with the most weeks at number one on the chart. And it was also the most added pop single of, to radio of all time, at least at that time, being added to over 200 radio stations in the first week alone, and that record was previously held by their rivals, the Backstreet Boys. The song was a number one hit in Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, and I know I mentioned this already, but it was featured in Britney Spears' Crossroads, and if you don't know what scene I'm talking about, please pause this podcast and go watch it, because Britney, Zoe Saldana, and Tara Aaron Manning singing Bye Bye Bye, you know, the I don't wanna be a fool, like that part. Oh my goodness, like just so friggin' legendary. The song I'll Never Stop was released as the second single in Europe. It was not released in North America. And to be very honest with you, I like the song I'll Never Stop, but it sounds exactly like the one by the Backstreet Boys. I'm not trying to get sued here, but I'm going to play like a five second clip. That way, like, you know, we can kind of skim it through just so you guys can hear it. If you know the song, the one by the Backstreet Boys, just so you guys know, like, how similar it really is. Yeah, so that's why I believe it wasn't released in North America, because I think that they knew that the fans would have picked up on that. And also, The One was their the current Backstreet Boys single at the time of this release. So, it's still a fun song, you know? It's a Max Martin Swedish classic. On to It's Gonna Be Me, which is... I mean, I know I said Bye 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 is their signature song, but, you know, maybe this can be right up there with Bye Bye Bye. Like, just such a legendary song. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. In our video, we have a concept of being in a toy store. Isn't that right, Mini-Me? Very good, Mini-Me. You know, we always want to bring something new to, to our videos, and I think with this one, we're going for a more 
kind of humorous mixed with a futuristic type vibe. We're actually doing it in a toy store. That's going to be the whole setup. And of course, Wayne Isham is uh, masterminding this whole piece again. And we got Kim Smith back. It was written by Max Martin, Andreas Carlson, and Rami Yacoub. The Swedes know exactly what they're doing with pop music, especially at this time. And this was the second number one single for writer Max Martin. His first was Baby One More Time with uh, Britney Spears. So on the weekend of July 17th to 18th, 1999, the band recorded the vocals for this song in Battery Studios during their break from performing on the NSYNC in Concert Tour in New York. And they also traveled to Stockholm, Sweden, where they recorded additional vocals at Max Martin's studio. Now, during recording, Max consciously wanted the lyrics to be sung in a specific way. So he was described, so I'm sorry, JC of NSYNC described it in an interview with Billboard as saying, it's gonna be May instead of it's gonna be me. And obviously, we all know that it's gonna be May memes and, you know, Max was right. He has an ear for these things. And 21 years later, that should have stuck. When writing for Billboard, Chuck Taylor insisted that It's Gonna Be Me was a finely crafted example of why pop music continues to excel on the top 40 airwaves. This is back in 2000, he wrote this. He stated that the members were able to utilize constructive layers of harmonization on top of an avalanche of meaty beats. And the song obviously was successful. It was a number one hit in Canada and was the only number one single for the band in the USA of their entire career. So definitely it's going to be me as one of those legendary pop gems. I just wanted to take a moment to let you guys know where you can find me on social media. I am on Instagram at planet2000s, or you can hit me up on my personal page at Michael Kadosh, C-A-D-O-C-H. If you guys want to talk about some good old pop music or just reminisce about some good times, then make sure to hit me up there. I'm also on Twitter or Facebook at Michael Kadosh. Back to the pod. The final single off the album was This I Promise You, which is my favorite song by NSYNC, period. I I don't know, maybe it's because I just love ballads. I've always been a ballad king. I love a sappy moment. But this song is just so beautiful. And it's definitely one of those songs that you always will hear at a wedding or like a first dance song. It's a beautiful love song. And it was written by Richard Marks and was a huge hit for the band. It hit number five in the US and was number one for 13 weeks on the adult contemporary chart. So definitely all the stations that played love songs were playing this, I promise you, all the time. Richard Marks is oh a great God. guy. I call him Richard Marks. It's very cool, very talented we did a song called promise i promise you he's probably got one of the best ears that we've all ever encountered just amazing in the studio and it was really easy to sing with him because he's a singer richard submitted actually uh, the demo of that song to us and it's a wonderful wonderful ballad In my opinion, JC's vocals on this track are out of this world, and they own Justin's vocals. To be honest with you, I always thought JC Chazé had a better voice than Justin Timberlake, and it's kind of crazy to me that JC didn't become a bigger star than he did, because his vocal chops and dancing chops, and he's cute. I don't know, it, it was always very puzzling to me, but he did his thing on his part of this song. They did a Spanish version as well, Yo Te Voy a Amar, released in Spanish-speaking countries. And yeah, it was written by Richard Marks. There's not really much else to say about this song other than it's just so beautiful. And it's definitely worth listening if you guys don't know it. There were some other really great, amazing songs in this album. You know, It Makes Me Ill, which was written by Kenny Burris and Kevin Shakespeare Briggs, is a great, great song and was sampled by Ariana Grande for her track Break Up With Your Girlfriend, I'm Bored. So, I mean, that's some legendary shit right there. And this album actually also saw the first time that Justin Timberlake ever wrote the song. And it was for the track I'll Be Good For You. Yeah, I wrote a track. It's called uh, I'll Be Good For You. It was the first time I wrote something that has made the album. Our manager heard it and he liked it. And you know, the guys, I guess, liked it. And 
It's kind of like Maxwell meets NSYNC. It's, it's got this old Marvin Gaye, Al Green type feel on it. It's all live instruments, but yet it's got our pop vocals on it, so it makes a cool mixture. The demand for the album was incredibly high. Originally, it was supposed to be released in the fall of 1999. However, after all the legal battles, it ended up coming out in March of 2000. And with the help from promotional advertisements that the group did with Verizon and Chili's and whatnot, the band had built up incredible anticipation for this record. The regional manager of Virgin Record Stores, Andy Marino, saying that the release date saw over 8,000 fans waiting for the group to show up for their CD signing. And he said, and I quote, We attempted to open at 11 for normal business, but when we opened the doors, the crowd rushed in and crashed through the barricades, so we closed down and let a couple of hundred in a few at a time. He was just saying that they were not prepared for the amount of people that were going to come for this CD signing. Side note, one huge thing that I really miss about physical media, you guys, and that I wish this new generation would understand is that back in those days when you would buy a CD, you would go the day that it came out and it was an event. The artists would have CD signings. It would be a whole thing and you'd feel so much closer to the artist and it would just be so much more exciting. Nowadays, everything is just so much more disposable and as much as streaming is great because we can get our music wherever we want at amazing quality, at the end of the day, having lived both eras of music and whatnot and how we're sharing it, I'm talking like from CDs into the digital age because I did live it. It's so different and it's just, it's really sad to see, but it is fun to look back and look back on these times for the nostalgia because this was a moment in time in pop culture and we're most likely not gonna have that again. So that's a little bit upsetting. In any case, NSYNC definitely got to have that moment. So if you are an NSYNC fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They went on their No Strings Attached tour, which was sponsored by MCY.com and Nabisco. Special guests for the tour were Pink and Cisco. It ran from May to December 2000 and it was actually the second highest grossing tour of the year, grossing $70 million, and it sold over a million tickets in its first day, selling out every single of its initial dates, which were 50 shows. Some highlights from the tour are Justin Timberlake received his high school diploma at the show in Memphis, and they also got a key to the city in Orlando. It was filmed for three different events, for an HBO concert at the Madison Square Garden show, which was viewed by over 6 million people on HBO. MTV did a taping for a special called Making the Tour, and there was a special concert film called In Sync, Bigger Than Life, that was at IMAX theaters for about six months. So they really profited to make sure that everybody who didn't get to see the show still got to see the show in some shape or form. Now, while it was obviously a very, very successful tour, there were still a little bit of hiccups, and I feel like it's worth mentioning because everybody knows that with boy bands come crazy fans, right? The bands were targets for assassination by a male teenager. His mother discovered a notebook that contained a detailed plan to kill all five members of the band during their show in Atlanta, and he called it Operation Death Strike. Yes, Operation Death Strike. So, what was his plan? He went and robbed a local gun store to obtain the weapon and money to carry out his plan. Well, this was what was written in the notebook, at least. I don't actually know if he went on to actually do it because I believe he was caught before. But his mother found the notebook and obviously told the police about it and he ended up going to a psychiatric hospital. Another incident that happened was that an hour before their show in Greensboro, North Carolina, a bomb threat was phoned in and no one was evacuated or told what was going on. They just didn't want people to panic and fear, so instead they left everyone at risk if there would have in fact been a bomb in the building. The authorities felt that there was no threat, so the concert resumed minutes before midnight. But yeah, kind of crazy. There were also some lawsuits that were happening around the time of the tour. Sid and Marty Croft Pictures were suing the band because they claimed that they were owed money for the creation of the puppets that were used as props or something like that. And then there was also a Missouri teen who sued Justin Timberlake because she said that she yelled, I think JC's better than you, he's cuter, and apparently 
apparently Justin punched her and there were witnesses. I, I don't even know. You know, you don't know what to believe. At the end of the day, everybody just wants money. But, you know, with pandemonium comes events like this. You know, it's kind of inevitable. So when it comes to how the album itself was perceived in terms of sales and critics and accolades, David Brown of Entertainment Weekly gave the album a negative review, stating that the songs of the album were merely synthetic funk spectacles and lacked real substance, only to receive an influx of letters from angry fans because you don't hate on NSYNC without 12-year-old girls sending you letters saying they hate you. I mean, what did you expect? <laughs> there were some Grammy nominations for the group for this album. They were nominated for Record of the Air, Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group, and Best Pop Vocal Album. They did, unfortunately, lose all the Grammys. They received an American Music Award, however, for Internet Fans of the Year. And they owned the MTV Video Music Awards in 2000, winning for Best Pop Video and Viewer's Choice. And the winner is... NSYNC! Okay, we forgot to thank our management, Weg and Johnny Wright, Melinda Bell, Doug Brown, everybody at Weg. Thank you very much. Oh, and we'd also like to send a big thank you to Jive Records for taking a project like us on when we were in a lot of trouble. Uh, thank you, Clive, Barry, all you guys at Jive. Thank Sonia. you. Sonia. This, is the one, this is the one award of the show that the fans get to vote on. And we owe everything to you guys. Everything. And we mean that. Thank you so much. We love you. We love you. Thank you, everybody. In terms of sales, the album sold 2.4 million copies in its first week, which was the highest first week sales ever for 15 years, up until Adele broke that when she sold over 3 million in her first week in 2015. But that's quite an amazing accomplishment, especially for a boy band and for a music act that a lot of people just didn't take seriously. They proved themselves that day. They're like, you may not take us seriously, but we're selling 2.4 million copies in our first week. What are you doing? So you know what? Good for them. It ended up selling over 14 million copies in the US alone, and it beat out the first week sales of the Backstreet Boys Millennium, which sold 1.13 million copies in the first week the year before. A lot of people thought that this was largely attributed to the two-year anticipation due to the legal battle and the intense media blitz surrounding the album. Craig Seymour of Entertainment Weekly at the time said, what has the industry buzzing is not only the 2.4 million fans that rushed to the stores, but that teen pop behemoth Jive Records was in a unique and almost unprecedented position to meet the store's demand. Which is true because normally, like, let's say an album is expected to sell a million copies. They'll ship out 1.2 million copies to the stores and then they have to make more. But the fact that Jive Records was so ready to have more and more copies, they knew this was going to be huge. And it changed the game in the music industry, at least for a short period of time. According to Billboard magazine, No Strings Attached was the top selling album of the 2000s. So obviously on the Planet 2000s podcast, we had to cover the top selling album of the 2000s. It belongs to NSYNC. Good for them. It was certified 11 times platinum in the US, 7 times platinum in Canada, and it was platinum in Argentina, Australia, and New Zealand. It also hit number one in the US, Canada, and Malaysia. All in all, this was an extremely successful era for NSYNC, and it definitely set the precedent for rivals, the Backstreet Boys, who released an album later this year, Black and Blue, to kind of meet the expectations. It was always a competition and it was like, who was going to sell more? Well, NSYNC kind of just went with it and sold 2.4 million. So it's it, the pressure was on for the Backstreet Boys, but the album has held up over the years. It is definitely the most recognizable NSYNC album with the most recognizable NSYNC tracks. And it definitely is cemented in pop culture history. So you can never take that away from those boys. You know, I may not be the biggest Justin Timberlake lover for my own reasons, Janet and Britney, but you know, I can't hate on NSYNC, man. NSYNC was awesome. Their music was great. I mean, 
mean, that's pretty much all I gotta say. You know, you can't deny greatness. Numbers don't lie as well. So thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Planet 2000s. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys jam out to some and sing today and, you know, relive a little bit of the Y2K days. I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.